welcome back to those of you that were here for the first session, and good morning and welcome to those of you that just come along. Uh, my name is Jonathan Gibbs, and I'm going to introduce Reshma Ruya, who's going to be giving the second of our creative writing workshops this morning. Uh, she is an alumna of LSE and uh, studied here, undergraduate and postgraduate, and has since worked for the OECD in the United Nations and then has come back abroad and has come back uh, to the UK where she's uh, studied creative writing at Manchester and published stories. And uh, she's just, there's a story it says in her information here uh, called Another Life, which was in an anthology called Too Asian, Not Asian Enough. And she just said that that was broadcast last week on Radio 4, so you can all go to your listen again. Uh, I, is it called listen again? Yeah, the iPlayer listen again and search for uh, Under the Skin, which was the name of the South Asian Literature Festival uh, program which they had on Radio 4. It was broadcast last Saturday, late at night, um, so you would literally have to do that today within the next sort of 12 hours or something. But yeah. by, you know, by, well, by, no, by this evening, anyway. Yeah. Uh, because by tomorrow it will be gone into the walls of the BBC. I'm sure it will come out again. So. Um, but anyway, Gresham's going to be talking about writing about different cultures and also writing cultures in a geographical sense, but also cultures in terms of a, you know, a vocational sense of what it might be like to work in something like academia or the real world and also write in a creative uh, and literary sense as well. So, thanks, Jonathan. Thank you all for coming today, and um, I'm sure you all had sort of very exciting things to do on a Saturday morning. But uh, it's great that you come here and you want to learn about writing. And um, my, the format today is, you know, I want to talk about writing uh, wearing two hats, really. More, more firstly, as a sort of practicing writer who's juggling a lot of commitments, like I'm sure, like all of you are. You know, I'm a mother, a wife and someone who came to writing relatively late in my journey. And uh, so I want that to be as a sort of an, an incentive and not a disincentive and something that uh, you should seriously think about considering because, um, you know, most of us feel that writing is a sort of very esoteric art. I mean, it is an art, but it's an art that can be learned and can be articulated at any age, you know, and that's, uh, literature is one field where ageism has no place, you know, and uh, nor does it have any gender specificity or race specificity. And, um, and thank you for actually wanting to, I think, uh, for about, well, wanting to learn how to write, because writing is itself a very powerful medium. I think Balzac said that it's, uh, a novel is like a private history of nations, and I couldn't agree with him more. As a social scientist and as someone you know who worked with the UN and uh, also sometimes in, in the field in Sub-Saharan Africa and in India, I found that a lot of these indices, you know, poverty and um, statistics about life expectancy and birth rate and the role of women, they were they just became numbers. And a writer, what a writer does is give a human voice and a face to such figures. And that was one thing that prompted me, you know, to sort of make the leap, you know, or say a gradual transition from being a social scientist and a UN bureaucrat, for want of a better word, into a writer who wanted to give a shape and sound to people who probably had wonderful stories but had no medium in which to convey, only because they were sort of fighting to survive. And um, and also, you know, in terms of creative writing, a lot, a lot of people think that it's because it's an art it's somewhat uh, like religion. It, ca it can be taught, but it can't be taught as well. And uh, as someone who has had the good fortune of being taught by um, Martin Amos, he was my supervisor at the, my PhD program, and MJ Highland, another brilliant Australian novelist. And at the moment, um, I think it's Com Toibin who's heading the Center for New Writing at Manchester University. Um, a lot of what I talk about today has been gleaned from really you know, from a, it's a distilled wisdom that I've acquired from them, and uh, and as you all know, you know they're sort of real practitioners of the art. And uh, so, what I have, uh, what I'll be telling you is not just sharing my own sort of cultural journey, which has shaped me as a writer, but also maybe giving you little tips, which perhaps John Jonathan has also alluded to. But I think with good things, you can't repeat advice, you know, uh, too often and too enough. And um, I've, I've also made a checklist, which uh, in fact Martin gave a, gave to us, and. I'll be handing that out at the end, you know. So it'll be like a 
panned out. So as I said before, you know, for me, and you know, I'm a, a, a hyphenated being, and which I think is not so unique anymore because we all live in a very multicultural, interconnected world. But for me, my sort of journey began in a small, sleepy town called Motihari in uh, uh, Bihar, which is on the border with uh, Nepal. And uh, incidentally, it's also the place where George Orwell was born. So you know, I have some literary affinity with him. <laughs> and. Um, so I was there because my father was a civil servant there, and he was, um, well, he, uh, Bihar was one of the states that he had to uh, look after or manage, you know, in a sort of, um, like a, it was like a inherited thing from the British Raj. And uh, from there I will move to Delhi, and um, again, in Delhi, in those days, in the 70s, was a very colonial, a very sort of a slow pace. It's not at all like the sh India that you would recognize today. You know, it was uh, still harboring a lot of wounds of this sort of Nehru's sort of confused Fabian socialism, along with a sort of benign autocracy. And life itself had a very slow pace. And uh, in a way, that nostalgia was a powerful influence in my growth as a writer. And this sort of slow pace of life, uh, in the late 70s, I exchanged it for another pace of life, which was a, my family moved to Rome, to Italy. Uh, my father was a diplomat there. And uh, my formative years were spent in um, Italy. Where, and the Italy then, uh, again, you know, I know I'm harking back to your past, because the Italy that you see today is a very sort of wounded animal. You know, It's lost its sort of sense of place in history. But in those days, it had still this very much the bella figura. And it was very much aware and confident of itself. You know, we had, of course, there were sort of complications with the corruption and the mafia, but that was very much in the background. It was still a place of beauty and hope, actually, and uh, self-belief. And uh, well, after Rome, then I made a leap to LSE, and it was wonderful. You know, I had the best years of my life here, and it's great. I mean, if you all are students here, I think you're so, so lucky. You know. It's a great place to imbibe not just an academic sense of curiosity and irreverence, but also an ability to challenge thoughts you know, and preconceived um, in, uh, intellectual uh, stream. And uh, after LSE, I went back to Rome again. And as uh, Jonathan mentioned, I spent a few years in the wilderness in the UN and uh, writing very sort of long, boring reports on structural adjustment and uh, very worth, worthwhile, of course. But, uh, you know, <laughs> effect of forest fires on um, uh, subsistence farming and uh, the use of pesticides and cash crops in Ghana. So all these, you know, um, they were all sort of uh, building blocks for my gradual, uh, you know, growth as a writer. And then uh, for the past 17 years, I've been living in, Ro uh, in Manchester. And um, Manchester, of course, has its own distinct identity to London, you know, and it has a sort of northern brashness which is quite at uh, variance with the sophistication and cosmopolitanism you find here in London. And in Manchester, I did my, as um, you know, uh, Jonathan's alluded, I did my master's in creative writing, mainly because, you know, why did I make that leap? Uh, it was also at the age of 16, for some reason, you know, I sent off some poetry, uh, a poem to a UNESCO sort of, or a European competition, and one of the first, uh, one of the prizes was the trip to Paris, and that sort of triggered, you know. So literature was very much a presence in my life. I was not a sporty girl. I was, you know, for me the idea of heaven was to uh, skip PE and uh, spend the time in uh, the library reading Jean Plady's <laughs> historical novels or whatever. You know. So um, literature for me was a lifeline as well as, um, you know a microscope and a telescope to the world, you know, and that's what I think good writing should do, you know. I think all writers, you know, uh, view uh, the world at an angle. We're all outsiders, you know, because uh, people say that geography is destiny. And for me, and like many of you in this room, I'm sure, uh, our geography is not such a distinct uh, place on the map, you know. We have boundaries that are all the time being blurred and bleeding into each other. And that's for the reality of today. So. Um, uh, when I say that, you know, I'm, I'm interested in characters who are in between, who occupy this twilight space, you know, and uh, I think that's a fascinating area of literature, and, and by that I don't mean just necessarily ethnic, uh, ethnic characters or ethnic topics, um, 
because um, I think we all are drawn to, and as writers, you know, uh, the sort of the challenge is to capture people who are caught, whether in that sort of in between stage in relationships or who are confronting um, dilemmas that you know take one turn instead of another, and what what has shaped them? You know, how do they cope with aging? How do they cope with a break, uh, children growing up? How do they cope with a marriage or a relationship gone sour. How do they stop dreaming or how do they say enough is enough, I'm at an age and I can't grow anymore. I can't go in any direction. And um, so, you know, uh, I think uh, that, so my sort of influence has been, you know, I'm always drawn to, you know, Rushdie saying, you know, he says that people like us are mongrels in a way, you know, we straddle lot parallel cultures, but sometimes we fall between stools, you know. And this sort of ambiguity and ambivalence, I think it's uh, not a source of weakness, I think it's a great strength for a writer. Because you don't want to stake your claim to a place on the map, you know, you want to be free floating. You, you don't want to play God, but you want to have that sort of omniscient eye that can see and uh, that can go to the heart of the, uh, what makes us human, you know, however flawed we are. So uh, that has shaped me. and. Um, my first uh, book was a product of my master's in um, creative writing. My uh, supervisor then was uh, Michael Schmidt. And uh, as usual, you know, especially as a woman and as a female writer, I think you're always very sort of timid and tentative. You know, I, I had small kids then and I thought, no, I can't really be doing it. But I really just want you to say that you need to, you know, you need to create space in your life and clear the clutter in your mind and just put the pen to paper. And so he persuaded me, and I sent off my first novel to an independent publisher called Black Amber Books, which is now part of Arcadia. And, um, and the book was published a few years back. Maybe it wasn't such a commercial success, because um, I was quite naive then. I thought I could do, uh, do away without an agent, and I was quite uh, unaware of the commercial manipulation and that the fact that a novel is a product that needs to be sold. But it got very good reviews, and uh, in fact, I think um, John, Care John Carey in the Times put it in his sort of books that should have been included in the long list of the book. And so it was a great incentive for me that, you know, this was validation, uh, not maybe in terms of um, validation in terms of commercial gain, but as someone, you know, it satisfied my literary aspirations and allowed me to dream a bit more. So what I'll do now is maybe I'll read you uh, a bit from my novel. It was called Something Black in the Lentil Soup. And it's in this book, um, uh, the book has been shaped by my nostalgia for India. You know, As I said before, you know, we are pro very much products of uh, the world around and within us. And I think even though I grew up in Rome, I think there was a bit a kernel within me that always longed for and uh, was drawn to this idea of India that I'd almost frozen in my heart. So. In this book, I want I, the book is a satire, and um, it is an ironical portrayal of an Indian male. And uh, I wrote from for some reason I always write from first person male perspective. I don't know whether <laughs> it's up to, I don't know how what Freud would make of it, but it's a, <laughs> I feel meant for me uh, also another country. So it was a cultural, it was a geographical leap in that sense of the term. And in this book, uh, what I've done, Kavi Naidu is the main protagonist, and uh, he has, you know, if you're an Indian male, uh, you are in a very fortunate position because your mother dotes on you, your wife dotes on you, and you're the sort of, you know, the center of the universe. So the book is, um, you know, is sort of um, poking gentle fun at this uh, old established Indian truism. So in this uh, chapter that I'm reading, it's called A Suburban Interlude, and it's about Kavi Naidu, who goes to visit an old family friend of his who has moved to England. And he's, um, he's, uh, his mother is accompanying him, and she's a very feisty old lady, who's, um, and Naidu's grown under her thumb. So, while waiting for my health to make a total recovery before our return to India, Amma decided to visit an old school friend of hers, one Mrs. Rama Joshi, whose husband had come to England in the early 60s. So caught up was I in the turns and twists of my own problems that I'd forgotten to contact her, despite Amma's strict instructions to do so. Do visit her, Naidu. It will be like a home away from home for you. Not that we were particularly close in school. All she ever wanted was to move to England with a husband who would make her live like a queen. Still, her mother made the most wonderful mouth-melting doklas. 
Mrs. Joshi lived in a part of London that even Mrs. Pereira couldn't locate on her map of the center. Some sixth sense had warned Mrs. Pereira that Amma was aware of her nocturnal deeds, and she now avoided us in a nervous, clumsy way, pleading a headache or her accounts as an excuse whenever we invited her to share our afternoon cup of tea. We eventually found Mrs. Joshi's house way out in West London, in a long road occupied by a row of identical homes. Large jumbo jet planes periodically swooped overhead, drowning our conversation. Amma looked around with disapproval, delicately lifting the hem of her sari over some fly of a newspapers lying on the pavement. Much has changed since Nehruji's time, she sighed, ringing the bell of number 52 Lee Gate Road. What if she's out? You should have let me telephone first, I said angrily, thinking of our countless changes of train. She will be in. After all, Rama must be only a full-time housewife. At that moment, an elderly Indian lady approached the house, dressed in a navy blue tracksuit, her hair tied back in an untidy grey ponytail. She was roughly Amma's age. A large maroon bindi covered most of her forehead. I ran to help with the two large shopping bags she was carrying. You must be Rama auntie. I've heard so much about you from Amma. Puzzled, she looked at me and then at Amma, who was staring at her with a curious expression. The maroon bindi lifted in surprise, and an uncertain smile broke the severity of her face. Shobha, can it really be you? Only rarely did I hear Amma addressed by her first name. I'd forgotten how musical it sounded. Auntie Rama's house was in a sorry state. I think we in India boasted better material standards, with a large airy verandas and profusion of flower pots. A large television dominated the drawing room, where the sofas and the carpet were a faded patchy brown. Peach-colored curtains firmly shut out the daylight, and I could barely make out a large holiday picture taken at the seaside of a much younger Auntie Rama, wearing large sunglasses and holding five scowling boys. Hung next to it on the wall was a Gujarati calendar on which certain dates had been heavily circled in red ink. Amma inquired about the children over some savory Gujarati save and masala tea. An embarrassed laugh followed each query, but Amma kept pressing in her direct manner. So, you're a poet, Beta, said Mrs. Joshi, skillfully turning the conversation. So impressive. Government paid trip to England. We always said Shobha would go far. Amma beamed at the compliment and took the opportunity to inform her friend of the recent activities of the Nehru Center. Auntie Rama listened politely, a vague smile fixed on her face. Her eyes from time to time darted over to the cuckoo clock hung above the television set. Embarrassed, no doubt, by her English attire, she had draped a type of chunni over her shoulder, and the light chiffon material contrasted starkly with the rough masculine cut of her tracksuit. And Joshiji must be hard at work in the office, the transport ministry, isn't it? Isn't he it, or has he retired? Before Auntie Rama could reply, the door opened and a wild-looking English girl entered the room and flung herself into a chair. She reminded me of a Shakespearean creature from the Tempest, with her untidy short hair, flimsy skirt, and mud-stained shoes. Her black socks ended just below the knee, and the round white balls of her knees looked back defiantly at us from where she sat. Amma looked at Auntie Rama, who looked at the carpet. The girl, unconcerned by the silent exchanging of looks, sat through flicking through the radio times. Eventually, with some effort, Auntie Rama said, This is Anita, my eldest daughter-in-law. You remember Ramesh? This is his wife. Aha, uh -huh. so this is the eldest Bahu. This is the daughter-in-law. Amma needed to say no more. Um, Anita's entrance seemed to have thrown a cloud over Auntie Rama. Her voice became high-pitched and brittle as she fretted over our lunch arrangements. Amma politely refused the half-hearted invitation to stay for some cheese and onion pie from the local chip shop, <laughs> and we took our leave. So much for living like a queen. Is this what she left India for? Amma exclaimed angrily as soon as the front door closed behind us. You noticed there were no mentioning of what her sons did. I bet they're good for nothing, train conductors or corner shop owners. And look at that Anita. English girls are not what they used to be. No blushing roses like our Jane Austen was. <laughs> Amma took my hand and held it tightly all the way to the station. Thank God I came when I did, or I could so easily have lost you to all this. The sweep of her arm took in the cold, deserted railway platform with its hoarding of bright sunshine holidays. 
The station master, an Indian like us, hunched over a newspaper in his booth, and the two teenage English boys wearing earrings arguing quietly and furiously near the gents' toilet. So that's just a <laughs> I hope um, that gave you flavor. As you could have um, sensed, it, it was uh, set, it steeped heavily in the sort of 70s nostalgia. And that was something deliberate, you know. Uh, some of the observations on the language were an exaggerated version, but I imagined, you know, that's how, you know, a sort of colonial Indian sensibility shaped by, say, P.G. Woodhouse or Jane Austen would articulate and think about. So the book is very much uh, harking back to lost maybe times of innocence. Um, and now, um, so after this book, um, I sort of hibernated for a few years. My children were young and uh, I was more busy being a mother, etc. And uh, and then a few years back, um, the Manchester University started a PhD in creative writing with Martin Amos, who was the sort of like the the trophy wife, I hope I'm not quoted on the trophy wife of the university. And uh, he was a big name, and of course, um, and then my old supervisor, Michael Schmidt, who was, who's now at Glasgow, he's contacted me and said that, why don't I consider going back and, you know, uh, sort of sticking my head above the parapet again. And uh, the result was uh, four years um, at uh, Manchester University. I've just completed my PhD. So, you know, when I talk about uh, uh, what writing means, you know, I've had about, well, six years of exposure to some of the finest literary minds and with lots of great visiting lect readers. But ultimately, I think as a writer, what you have to write about is from your own, you know, you can learn only as much. And whatever I'm saying is prescriptive. You have to fashion it to your own needs and to your own um, sort of imperatives as a writer. Uh, so um, now what I'll probably talk about is uh, maybe the um, the craft of writing, you know, from what I've learned and uh, share with you. Now the craft of writing, you know, you might say there's no workmanship or craft, but I feel that uh, writing is, uh, you know, the, the techniques in writing or in building up a novel is the quiet engine from which, you know, no amount of gloss or body work that you might put will not, it won't sustain a novel unless these particular certain elements or certain building blocks are there. And uh, the first thing I learned, um, uh, and uh, which I've realized as a writer, is a good reader makes a good writer. You know, you have to read. You have to read as much as you can. And, uh, and not just read in a passive, sort of leisurely beach read kind of way. But read as an active, um, read as an active form of dialogue with the book. You know, uh, sort of underline bits that you like. Even you know, uh, put a pen through. I, I remember I had one tutorial with Martin, and he gave me one book. Um, I think it was Paul Auster's <coughs> *The Music of Chance*, and he said to me, "You must read. You must read it." And uh, it wasn't a uh, writer that I was necessarily naturally drawn to, but. I think you have to open yourself. Uh, I've grown up sort of reading on <coughs> my favorite writers tend to be British writers. You know, I love um, Julian Barnes, I love Graham Greene, I love and um, Virginia Woolf. Or, uh, you know, I read Indian writers writing in English like Chumpa Lahiri or Anita Desai, Rowinton Mystery. But what I realized was that in order to be a good read, a writer, and especially about a writer who wants to write about the wider world or about cross-cultural issues, you have to read literature written by writers and other, you know, who are coming from a different cultural context. So I wrote, uh, read a lot of American literature, uh, especially Raymond Carver. He's absolutely his prose was absolutely brilliant, very clear cut. And uh, I wrote, I read writers who wrote unlike me, totally unlike me. And uh, Saul Bellow, I read. I read John Updike and. Um, and I did what you know. I was told I actually wrote physically, and the very act of writing actually is. Uh, I don't know whether it's osmosis, water. You know, the words become almost like physical objects. You know, when you write it by longhand. I think we are so used to the computer and the keyboard that we've forgotten that what an old-fashioned sense of you know a pen against paper can do. You know, so I would definitely uh, recommend that as an exercise that you read, and not just read, but read actively, engage with it. And the second thing I would say is that don't delay or procrastinate, you know. It's uh, the devil inside your head, you know. You'll always have shopping trips, you'll always have gossip sessions over coffee and Starbucks and friends. And you've got to, you know, writing is, um, 
you know it's a commitment it's a it's a vocation it's what you call it what you will but uh, you have to t turn a deaf ear to the noise of the world around you and make space in your life for writing and there's no perfect first line i'm sure jonathan mentioned that uh, there's no perfect first line and there's no perfect first chapter a lot of big uh, writers in the beginning they think that they'll turn up they're almost disheartened when you know they see the first chapter and it's almost not as good enough but they feel oh my god you know uh, there's this imperative uh, that you know you've got to be you've got to produce um, the best but you have to keep revising and correcting umpteen times and a good novel a, uh, something that you can be proud of claiming is your own is a four drafts away so my next novel is is the product of you know i've rewritten it four times and um, so that's i mean that's really a uh, sort of a truism that no novel is complete in the first or the second draft in fact when you write the second draft the best way to write it is to put away the first draft and not even to look at it you know to put this, uh, lock it away in the drawer and write fresh with fresh eyes and um, so for my, this novel that i've uh, my next novel that i've written uh, was uh, in, initially i wrote it in the pre present tense and i was quite happy with it quite happy with the way the characters had sort of morphed into what they were and then my supervisor said oh actually don't you think it would work better as a past tense in past tense it would be more it would give more perspective and more, you know widen the horizon and i thought oh my god yes actually she's right and uh, it was a lot of labor so i essentially you know i uh, in 3 months i rewrote the whole novel again but you know changing everything changing the tenses and it did it made a remarkable difference so you know just experiment play with it you know just writing is like a dough you know you need to play with it fashion it maybe change the font look back uh, print it out uh, look at it with fresh eyes or get a friend or an enemy to read it or maybe you might get better advice that <laughs> so yeah. so now what i'll do is i'll read you from my next novel it's called a mouthful of silence and um, i should i'm aiming to get it published uh, soon i'm in the process of finding agents now and i'm quite positive about it so now this novel you'll notice has um, changed shape and it's very different to my first novel not just because i've grown as a writer but also because um, my style has changed a lot uh, i think in this novel is about once again you know as i said i want i love writing about um, people who are straddling lots of different ways of being and different cultures so in this i've looked at two communities uh, in manchester the jewish community and the indian community and this book is a very dark and a very brooding sort of a, a tragic tale it's a man who again i've sort of challenged certain assumptions you know about age for instance the central protagonist pk mongya is a man who at 55 and uh he still has a hunger in him and i think society doesn't accept that i think once you cross a certain age you know you're supposed to quieten down and just be content with your lot and what i've look um explored in this novel is a man who's still hungry for love who's still hungry for new beginnings and who in that process in, in terms of um, his pursuit of happiness he's not ashamed or afraid to shake the very foundations of his life in terms of his relationship with his wife and with his son so again you know it's a quite a disturbing novel and i think it will disturb a lot of the indian re readers because i have a uh, sort of uh, the family unit is a sacred cow in the indian society you know you think that that's something that has to be uh, preserved and honored in in all respects so this what the, this book does is to challenge that and uh, so what i'll do is i'll the bit i'm going to read you out is about um, pk who's the main man he's meeting esther the woman he's uh, attracted to who's also the wife of a competitor yeah this is set up in the um, uh, in the garment trade in the district of uh, manchester because uh, you know fashion and textiles are very much the lifeblood in manchester and is the world i see around me but uh, there's no resemblance to anybody <laughs> real or otherwise uh, um so this is uh, they have stolen away and they're meeting at a restaurant in chester for the first time and uh, this what this passage says is how we sort of misunderstand and miscommunicate our own and bring our own cultural sensibilities and um, baggage to you know a relationship uh so this is pk who speaking again, again it's a first person narrative and it's from the male point of view so make of that what you will <laughs> um i'm not a morning person i said ordering another bottle of champagne 
The food was fancy. Esther had ordered duck and vegetables, but my appetite was gone. Let's talk about you instead. It's far more exciting, I said, leaning forward until our faces were closed. I could smell the drink on her breath. She told me about her childhood in St. John's Woods and the Friday night dinners with the rabbi. I said I'd forgotten she was Jewish. 100% kosher, she laughed. Don't you think we Jews and Indians are so alike? I tried to remember the Jews I knew. The only ones I saw were the Orthodox ones who lived at the end of our road. Every Saturday I saw them walking to the synagogue, the women wearing expensive hats and the men kippahs, with kippahs on their head. They were elegant and aloof. They were different. Yes, we are so similar, and Esther insisted. The wine had deepened the color in her cheeks. We have the same obsession with food and family, the same neuroses about being on the margins. We are both outsiders, the two of us, absolute misfits, she said. I wondered if meeting me had made her think about Indians, and I thought of her husband, who supplied most of the high streets in England, thought of his hunting and shooting with the lords and the ladies. There was nothing misfit or marginal about him. I told her about a golf club in Cheshire that only accepted Jews and Indians. No dogs are English allowed. It was a poor joke, but I got a laugh out of her anyway. Good for them. We are like peas in a pod. Why shouldn't we stick together, Esther said, pushing her food around with her fork. She barely touched it. The alcohol went to my brain and it made me bold. We were halfway through our second bottle and I wanted to pay her a compliment, to say something that would bring the color rushing back to her cheeks, make her realize the effect she was having on me. Have you always had such long hair, Esther? It's so thick and glossy. She ran her hand through it self-consciously. Cedric hates it. He says it makes me look girlish and immature. I should have a well-behaved bob at my age, she said. I love your hair. Indian men love long hair. It's a sign of a woman's beauty. The couple at the next table looked up from the table and glanced at us. Thank you. I'll make sure I don't cut it in a hurry. I bet your wife's hair is really beautiful. She sighed and pulled her earrings, slipping them into her handbag. Her earlobes were soft and pink and naked. I wanted to touch them. She looked down at her plate and then everything went quiet. I felt as though I ought to talk about our kids and mention Sammy, but I didn't. There were too many cracks in the present. I remembered she'd been to India and had spent time in Bombay. It would have been fun to meet when we were younger, I said, wanting a slice of that young Esther, dutifully doing her 20 laps every morning in the pool at the Taj, her long white arms slicing through the water. You would have hated me then. I was plump and clumsy with dreadful freckles on my nose. But, I, but you, I can't ever imagine you being anything but handsome. Her clear eyes assessed me as she said this. I looked away, frightened that she'd notice what her eyes were doing to me. So uh, that's the flavor of my new novel. And um, so as I said, you know, I've ob obviously I've evolved as a, a writer and what I learned was that, you know, the prose, what I'm going to say now is in fact that um, in terms of drafting, you know, the trick is not, you know, this book, begin life as a much larger animal, you know, I had to keep chopping and uh, cutting out bits. And the trick is not to care at all, you know, keep slashing away and um, reworking till what emerges in the end is prose that's uh, pure, which is uncluttered and which rings true. And more than that, you know, you need to be a detective of the human heart, you know. I, you, you should always carry a notebook or a diary with you. I know it sounds almost facile, but I can't stress enough that, you know, a lot of people think, okay, I'll rely on memory, but you can't, you know. You, ne you need to, even, even when you're sitting on the bus or wherever you are, you should notice how a woman sort of plays with her hair, how a man leans forward to order coffee. And observe your family, your friends, the way they sit, the way they eat, the way they fight. What do they do with their hands when they're bored, you know? And um, what you, um, because writing can't be hurried, you know? And um, as I said, you know, you need to reread your manuscript, bearing in mind that what, what are you trying to do with each paragraph, you know? What are you trying to establish? What sort, of, uh, what sort of mood are you trying to create? And what kind of background? And look, look out also for repetition, you know? Sometimes we, we, are so, we fall so much in love with an image that we almost unconsciously carry it on. Or we repeat the same phrases or mannerisms in a character. But you know, the more striking a word or phrase, the more visible it will be to your writer, uh, to your reader. And um, so you must check that you have more than one chapter that accomplishes or repeats the same thing. 
So be careful of that. So, you know, you need to just purge that. Um, um, and then there's some sort of technical rules. Uh, one is, of course, you know, which I'm sure you all know, is the resist the urge to explain, you know. So show but tell. So like Chekhov said, you know, he said that don't tell me the moon is shining. Show me the glint of light on broken glass. And that's, you know, and that's so true, you know. You can't, you know, for instance, you know, it was different in, so, say, like in the Victorian novels where I think people had more sort of unhurried sense of time, so they could follow the gradual buildup of a plot or a dialogue. But these days, the reader, and we, of course, don't have, we have a very short attention span. So what you need to do is see the story, almost like a film, you know, visualize it as a series of immediate scenes. And don't give a narrative summary, you know. Show through the action what um, the characters are feeling, you know. So instead of saying, oh, for instance, Anne took one look at the hotel room and recoiled in disgust. You know, describe the room. Say that the headboard had uh, uh, the uh, sort of imprint of somebody else's head or that the sink had one long brown hair sticking in it or the dustbin was, had one discarded condom or something. You know, make the reader feel the disgust for themselves. And um, please uh, avoid cliches and similes unless you want to make a farce or, you know, unless you want to create a farcical. Especially in the creation of minor characters, because sometimes we think, you know, it's the easiest way to prop them up, you know. So, for instance, if you're talking about a, a judge or something, you know, you would say, oh, no, about a priest, or he had very kind eyes, or he had an understanding smile. Or spinsters, for some reason, always have thin lips and bony wrists, so, <laughs> you know. So don't uh, reduce them to, you know, to uh, just one sort of thing, which, you know, it sounds very stale and it doesn't do your prose justice, really, you know. You owe it to yourself to be as clear and as, uh, to say the old same thing, but in a new way. Because most stories are the same, you know. We are, they're about people looking for connection, you know. And, uh, you know, I'm not talking about science fiction or maybe sort of expert, but uh, sort of the heart of a good novel is that, you know, the people reaching for meaning or people who have lost a sense of meaning either within themselves or in, um, in terms of the world around them. So cut out cliches and similes. And uh, strong characters are the lifeblood of your, of your novel, you know. I would say even more than uh, the plot. A good character, you know, I mean, I'm sure you can remember characters who have stayed with you forever, you know. You might forget a story, you know. A good story will, uh, you know, will, a good plot will carry a story, but a character will make it unforgettable, you know. And in that sense, uh, what you could do is, you know, emphasize a trait, a tick, or a mannerism, but uh, the way they make a, um, a cup of tea. So what you need to do when you think of make, uh, drawing up uh, the ca your characters, writing about them, is who are these people, what are they doing, or what are they likely to do next, what is at stake, and why should the reader care about them? And um, for instance, you know, I mean, you can, you know, for me, Graham Greene's characters have always stayed with me, you know, they're always sort of slightly damaged, flawed human beings who are tussling with, you know, their sort of inherited sense of Catholic guilt and their search for love. And the same with the Jhumpa Lehri's characters. There are certain, uh, you know, you, you can recognize the voice, you know, there's this sort of uh, upper class Bengali sensitivity and um, empathy with the finer things and the bewildered lost characters and but they stay with you they become like uh, your own family you know that's what a good character does you know he or she takes um, hold of your hand and doesn't let go and in terms of dialogue is what will make your character alive you know you have to put yourself in the background as a writer you're not the subject unless of course it's um, <coughs> you're writing an autobiography and make sure um, uh, the reader knows who is speaking, who is speaking, you know. And when you write a dialogue, uh, put a break when you would naturally in a speech because um, we all pause for breath and um, we don't speak in complete sentences in real life. And so, you know, make sure of that, you know, in terms of, uh, uh, you know, uh, when you draw, when you write about this speech. So don't uh, use contractions, use interruptions, have the characters interrupt each other, misunderstand each other deliberately. And, um, and as far as possible, use verbs and nouns, you know. Don't use adjectives and adverbs because they take away the purity of the sentence, you know. For instance, instead of saying that uh, angrily she went out of the door, you could just say she slammed the door and left. So, you know, you, 
what adverbs and adver adjectives do is they just dilute the urgency of what you're saying. You know, they're just unnecessary trimming. It's like wearing a hat when you know you can go about bareheaded. You know, that's what they do. So they have no, in terms of modern fiction, they have no role. You know, I mean, a bare minimum role. And the best way to see how a dialogue sounds is to read it aloud. And that what that will do is to help you determining the voice, the vocabulary, the emotions, the history. And it helps you to, the rhythm will, uh, the na more natural the rhythm sounds, the better it is. So, and what we do in writing, and it's called something like, it's, it's called like beats, which you might be aware, is when you put a sort of, uh, you allow your reader to picture the dialogue. So for instance, if a conversation is taking place over dinner, you know, you could have an occasional drop fork, or the, one of the characters sipping wine, just to set the scene, so just to help the imagination of the reader. But you don't need an entire description of the menu or the, you know, uh, what kind of music was playing, unless you know that's fundamental to the plot. And how many beats or how much sort of this sort of external externalities you put in depends on the rhythm of your dialogue. So if you have two sort of high tension scenes in a row, you should interrupt it with some sort of distraction. Otherwise, you know, the reader will also, you know, you'll be overwhelmed. And um, now, in fact, after. Um, I just want to read you one example of uh, something that uh, of poor prose, you know, somebody who's used all the, uh, who's disobeyed all these rules, and uh, I'll just read that, and I'm, I'm sure you'll be able to tell what thing, what bits are sort of superfluous. Uh, this is sort of the typical kind of thing one sees in early drafts. Yeah, the smell in the crowded pub was so vile that I nearly gagged. It was like the smell of a camel that's been dead for three days. I whispered under my breath to Sarah. That smell is so disgusting. And Sarah nodded so violently, I thought her head would fall off. But she still looked beautiful with all her red curls wrapping round themselves, like the golden tendrils of an ancient oak tree, or like the snakes on Medusa's head that we saw in the museum last week. Now, as I'm sure you'll be able to tell, the description that they're just too breathless and overwrought. And, um, and you know, it just died. The narrative loses its credibility when so many images are. Uh, sort of pushed against each other. So something pro prosaic would have been far better. You know, sometimes we think we have to use ornate, fancy words. We have to sound clever, but you don't have to. You know, the simpler the word, the more meaningful it will be. So you know, for instance, you know, a more subtler and truer description of the smell would have been better. You know, like saying the pub smelt of whiskey or vegetable soup. I mean, we can imagine what that would smell like, but. Um, I doubt, you know, uh, I don't think we know what, exactly what a camel that's been dead for three days would smell. <laughs> and, you know, and the crowded pub is noisy, so why the hell would she sort of whisper under her breath and, you know, expect to be heard? So just be aware of these little sort of false starts, these little minefields that can turn, you know, that can turn a really good story, uh, can let you down as a writer. And then in terms of uh, story, actually, I, uh, we come down to the plot, you know, and I'm sure you know E.M. Foster's famous dictum that the, a plot, the narrative has to have a beginning, middle, and end. And um, in broadly speaking, I think a story has to make sense. It should be, you know, if you, uh, you think of an analogy, I always think of a tree, you know. If you could climb down from the root up to the, make sure the root leads to the branches, to the leaves, to the twigs. Uh, it should somehow fall, uh, make into... Uh, fall into place and do not explain too much um, because when you describe every bit of action down to the last detail what you give is a reader is a very clear picture of what's going on but you are also limiting the imagination I think and uh, it's far better to give your readers some hints and then allow them to fill the gaps uh, themselves so that's uh, we've done plot and then finally the narrative stream you know in terms of uh, narrative, uh, what you need to do is to decide whether you're writing from the first person, the third person, or the omniscient. But whatever you do, make sure it's consistent. And that um, what happens is that, uh, what happens is that if you, keep, uh, if you keep changing your narrative flow, if you keep changing points of view, the reader gets confused as well. And, um, Finally, I think I'll leave some time for the questions. But just to summarize, you know, what good writing is, you know, it's a leap of faith. And it's not uh, just a trick of grammar. So, you know, bear that in mind. And, uh, and now, you know, I'll just open the floor to you for questions.
Question. Actually, in fact, a lot of uh, English, um, uh, a lot of Indian writers who wrote in English in the earlier days had uh, felt the need to have a glossary at the back or have italics or footnotes, but I don't think that's uh, necessary anymore. As long as you explain, uh, as long as it's in context, you know. You might maybe even put it in italics, but uh, I don't think you need to explain the world, you know. If it's sort of good fiction, you know, if it's the, it should come out in the, in the story. Yeah, um, yeah, I just wonder, you've, uh, both you and Jonathan have written um, under the structure of uh, a master's or a PhD. Yeah. Do you think that's uh, a, real, a huge benefit? Would you recommend that? Or? Uh, I think I would, actually, but it depends on one's, uh, you know, how much time or, you know, um, you know, one's circumstances. For me, certainly it gave me the structure and discipline. And uh, the fact that, you know, you, one, I was taught by sort of professional writers in that sense, you know, that really helped me. But I think if there's, uh, if you're sort of the need or the, the impulse is there, you can have wonderful books, uh, you know, which are available on the market and you can self-edit, you can read. And so yes and no, really. You know. But I would recommend. And I mean, there are also sort of week-long courses that are run. So, you know, if you can't commit to a master's or a PhD or that sort of sustained time, that's definitely worth going. Or maybe even joining a, a, a book club, maybe, perhaps, you know, to... Uh, sort of share ideas about reading. Yeah. Hi. Um, Hi. Yeah, so I want to ask your opinion on writing. Um, sorry. Um, so basically, I was writing this book, and my family's in the Philippines, right. so it's not obviously as well-known culture as yeah. India and so on. So in terms of the dialogue, I was writing in English, but when I was getting feedback from it, obviously they said they can't pick up that, yeah. Yeah, your mom is from here, they just sound like an English yeah, yeah. parent. So yeah. what's your kind of tips and writing yeah. in to give obviously that kind of bit of flavor without mm -hmm. making, it, making it almost comical? Yeah, no, I would say that I think uh, what you're saying, you know, the story and the narrative you're presenting is definitely something very fresh. Mm -hmm. And I think you should persevere with it, you know, you, I mean, you, uh, like, uh, you know, writers write in the way that they are, you know, they, they want to sh show the world. I think you'll be, you'll be being true to your characters, you know. For instance, you know, there are books which, uh, where they're written in pidgin English or, uh, you know, with Creole mannerisms or Creole phrasing. So, yeah, definitely. No, I think you should continue with that because that's what lends it its uniqueness, the, its unique voice, you know. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I just, um, thanks so much. I've really enjoyed your talk. Um, I was curious, you know, you didn't start out as a writer. You started out sort of working in the UN and all that. And I wondered when you kind of made that transition over, or maybe even before you made that transition, if you had to kind of tell yourself, okay, I'm just going to try this. I don't know if I'm a writer, but what, what kind of, what did you go through in terms of deciding that you're going to do it? Yeah, a lot of self-doubt, I think that's for sure, you know. Because, you know, a lot of us are good readers, but, you know, we th you know, if you like reading, you know, you might assume that you might be a good writer as well. But, you know, that one doesn't necessarily lead to the other. And uh, I think uh, a sort of supportive environment, you know, I think my family was very supportive to me. And, uh, and really, I couldn't do anything else, really. <laughs> I think that was the truth, you know, I was hopeless at selling things. So. <laughs> and the only way, you know, I could really... Uh, and um, when I moved to Manchester as well, it was uh, uh, I couldn't really continue my life as a UN diplomat, so I needed to have a sort of a rebirth. And then I just thought that you know why not you know go after this dream? You know I've always fancied I've always written poetry actually, and I never really attempted prose. And uh, so it was uh, amazing. You know I just made that leap of faith. Yeah. Yes. Um, so when you are writing um, and your story revolves around different cultures, yeah. like you did in your uh, story about Jewish culture mm -hmm. and Indian, uh, what what do you think are the risks involved in writing about other cultures? You have yeah. to definitely do a lot of research, yeah. but also how uh, 
a reader from that culture mm. would accept your writing and what kind of things you should keep in mind while writing such yeah. yeah, no, the risk, I think, uh, there is so many because it's very easy to reduce a culture to a caricature or to one sort of, you know, mm -hmm. to reduce them to a stereotype. But then, you know, when you see in real life, but that's how we all are when we talk to each other, whatever, you know, uh, we do have, uh, we don't have that subtlety, you know, and sometimes if your story is about uh, ordinary people interacting, what uh, the trick is that uh, you know they might start off with these presumptions, and but then just as you know, uh, taking a piece of rock and then so slowly chiseling away, and that's where you know the layers come in. So what you should do is maybe start with those sort of assumptions, and then then debunk the myths, you know, and then just you know, and that's where the crafting comes in, you know, in terms of character development. Uh, for instance, this mouthful of silence, you know, when PK sees Esther, he sees her, you know, she's a certain type of Jewish lady, and he. He sort of blends out those ca character characteristics, and then when he comes to know her, you know, he finds there's a lot of vulnerability. There's there a lot, of, you know. Essentially, you know, you scratch the skin, we're all the same. You know, we all uh, have the same neuroses and the same fears and the same worries. And uh, but you know, being of, from a certain culture might give it a different sort of you know shape, or you know, you might suppress certain elements of that. Yeah. I have one last question, okay. unfortunately. Okay. Um, oh, dear, I've got two right here. Oh, yeah. um, okay, sorry, okay. take that um, I've been reading a lot about writing, and you know, there's just two seem to be two schools about the people that don't plan anything, which seem to be way back when, and the people now who plan. Yeah. And you know, we said, do whatever works for you. Yeah. Um, in terms of character development, do you? write out the character, do you write about the character before you start writing the book? Do you yeah. have a picture of him? Because I've started doing like the central contents <coughs> of my character and it makes it so much easier. Yeah, yeah. Um, opposed to those people who just put, these imaginary people just pick pen to paper and the story just comes yeah. to them. So yeah. you, you actually do write about the person. Yeah, there's uh, sort of two ways. I mean, when I was writing about PK, I just had this voice in my head and an image, you know. I dreamt of this man, uh, not dreamt, I mean, I carried this vision of a man who was sort of, tall and he had like a, a tall and very sort of striking looking, you know, not necessarily handsome but striking. And it was a voice, you know. So, but definitely I think a rough plan works, you know, but uh, a novel is very organic, you know, and it will change and you shouldn't get too attached to a firm notion, you know, of what a character is or how he or she is going to end up. Uh, so definitely have like the skeleton, but then the flesh will change, you know. Okay, I'm afraid you have to stop it there. I'm going to say Sorry. thank you very much to Keshav.